Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we talk to a local author slash hockey official, Mitchell Jeffrey, who's written a book about hockey officiating. We chat about what it's like to be a ref and gain a little insight into all the debates that are going on right now amongst hockey fans and missed calls. Then we'll talk to local golfer Todd Fanning, who just picked up the Manitoba Mid-Am Championship at his home course at Niaqua. That's all coming up on the podcast. My next guest is the author of a book called How to Referee Hockey. It's not just about the rule book. His name is Mitchell Jeffrey, and he joins us now. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me. So what inspired you to write this book? I always wanted to write a book. I wasn't sure what I was going to write a book about. It was going to be a retirement activity. And then all of a sudden I realized that after 20 years of officiating hockey and nearly a decade of being an administrator, that the, the topic was, was, uh, was supposed to be about officiating hockey. And, uh, and, that's, and that's how we got here. So you're from Winnipeg. I should mention that. You live here. What is the, uh, what is the timeline of your refereeing career? When did you first get involved in the officiating angle of the game? Uh, in 1999, I was, uh, I was 13 years old, and I was playing hockey out of Varsity View Sportsplex, and I signed up to be a referee. I'm not sure why. It just it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then my first game ever was at Grant Park Arena, which is small and cold and uh, <laughs> dark. And uh, it was a tough experience, but I, I, I enjoyed it enough that I kept coming back. And I worked my way up. I did AAA hockey. I worked junior and senior hockey in my early mid-20s and then uh, refocused on administrative work. Or I shouldn't say administrative work, referee development. So I've been vice president of officials in Charleswood, St. James for eight years now. And then I'm vice president of officials for the Women's Junior League uh, that's run out of the uh, MTS Iceplex. So I guess Bell, Bell MTS Iceplex now. And uh, all of that just kind of uh, culminated me continuing, uh, continuing the opportunities that came in front of me. What have you learned about officiating through the time that you've been involved in, in writing this book that uh, maybe the, the regular hockey fan might not know about? When we talk about, when fans talk about officiating, the focus is always on the penalties and games will go badly because a referee called this and not that. And that's always what the water cooler conversations are about. And what fans and even new officials don't realize is that there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen earlier in the game in order to get to the, a place where a game will go sideways. And when we look at NHL officials, the majority or all of those NHL officials have developed a lot of those skills that become, come before calling the penalties, where they are on the ice, what their body language says, how they talk to players, how they talk to coaches, and that's what most fans see. But when you're watching a minor hockey game, these 13-year-olds, these teenagers, they don't have all those skills. So when we see a minor hockey game or a game, an amateur game go sideways, the conversation drifts towards the idea of, well, they should have called this penalty or that penalty, when if we dive deeper into what went wrong, it was actually a lot of skills that exist below penalty selection that could have saved them from ever getting to the point where a game goes sideways on, on them. So what kind of 
I don't know if abuse is the right word, but in your time officiating, I'm sure you've heard it from parents and coaches alike. <laughs> what kind of verbal jabs have been thrown your way from people that aren't happy with your work? I, you know, there's the funny ones. So when you're doing line change procedures, the referee wearing those red armbands, you raise your hand up and uh, the funny ones are raise your hand if you're blind, right? And you have no choice but to put your hand up because you're doing line change procedure and a, and, a, and a smart aleck in the stands will pull that one. And that one kind of makes you chuckle. Uh, there was a game, I was doing a triple A game at Maple several years ago. And it was the first game after Christmas. One of the triple A games, the teams had cut a player and the other team had picked him up and they happened to play their first game after Christmas against each other. And there was uh, uh, allegations made against the player. There was the player making allegations against the team. And then the two teams had a bad history on top of that. And uh, I, I got to draw the first game after Christmas when this player was coming back to face his former team. Uh, so the pair that the stands were very heated and, uh, and I had someone open the gate and start yelling across the ice at me. Uh, if you know Maples, there's this, there's this uh, section right behind the timekeeper's box. After the second period, I had to just simply move all the parents to one side, uh, one team to one side, the other team to the other side. Uh, that's, that was probably one of the uh, most intense ar- entire arena moments uh, that I've had to deal with where, yes, there were parents that were injected and uh, gates were opened and I was screamed at. And uh, But when you come down to it, I, I think that those moments as an official, they give you the opportunity to realize that it's not always your fault and all you can really focus on in those moments is what you can control. You can't control people yelling at you, but you can control your effort and you can control yourself. And that's a life skill. And that's something that's been really neat about officiating for two decades for me is the life skills that I've I've learned myself and they've gotten me to a certain place in my life. And then the opportunity to help uh, young people develop those skills through officiating. Talking with Mitchell Jeffrey, Winnipegger, who has uh, written a book, self-funded it, How to Referee Hockey. It's not just about the rule book. Have you seen officiating numbers in terms of the people getting involved in officiating? Has it gone up? Has it gone down? Is there a dire need for more people to get involved? You always need officials. So there's in Winnipeg, we lose about 33% of officials every year. Uh, generally, Winnipeg will have about 500 officials uh, certified each season. Some of those officials will be 13 years old. Uh, some of them will be, of course, adults like myself. Uh, but we usually have about 500 officials in Winnipeg. And in Assiniboine Park in St. James, neither one of those associations by themselves have enough officials to, and it's been this way for as long as I've been involved or aware. So let's say 15 out of my 20 years when I've actually been aware of the number of officials there are. Uh, neither one of those associations has enough officials to run their games themselves. So the only way that those two associations are able to run their games is by we've amalgamated all the officials. So we use them on on both St. James and Charleswood slash River Heights slash tuxedo uh, in order to have enough officials to work all those games. So you do have to get creative in where you get your officials from in order to staff all of the games that exist. Do you have uh, an opinion watching the NHL and seeing a lot of missed calls and the debate that's happening right now about trying to figure out the standard and what's a cross-check and all these uh, conversations? Is that something you keep up on? 
I am a, a part of multiple Facebook groups with officials from all over the world. Uh, there's lots of animated conversation in those groups. There's lots of times when we're reminded by the moderators that we are not NHL officials, that we do have to respect what the guys in that league are doing. In the book, I, I've set up the skills of, as, of the referee on this pyramid. You have positioning at the bottom, procedures in the middle, game management at the top of that pyramid, and then all the way around professional skills. So when we talk about game management, selecting a penalty comes down to how well that penalty can communicate with the entire arena. So the referee has to be able to communicate what is and isn't allowed in games. So when we see an official make a certain decision on the ice, whether it's the NHL or watching your 10-year-old niece, nephew, or son, or daughter play a hockey game, referees need to be finding ways to use penalties, not just to enforce the rule book because you're always missing something. It's impossible to see everything, to call everything, but also to select the right impact penalties. And there's a very uh, in-depth section in the book about impact penalties and how it is that all the skills get you to a place of being able to apply impact penalties. And that applies to what the NHL officials do, and it also applies to what our minor hockey officials do. But what I would say, the big difference, is that the NHL has its own culture around what is and is not a penalty, and minor hockey has to have its own culture. And when we're talking minor hockey, we're talking a 13-year-old who's not making $5 million a year or $750,000 a year. Uh, And you have to be much more focused on the safety aspect of it. So there is a different culture around what we teach our officials to call, versus what the officials in the NHL would be looking to call, where you do have an entertainment aspect to it, uh, for better or for worse. And there's the conversation in the NHL about how the the style of play shifts from the regular season to the playoffs, and there are playoff games where there's lots of clutching, lots of holding, and there's like one penalty called. The, the criticism is, well, the rule book's there, just call the rule book. Is it as simple as that? No. Because, although, so yes and no. Yes, in that it seems as though if we could just call everything, it would all go away. So that's the yes part. The no part is that even with two guys wearing the red stripes, so that's the four official system in the NHL, they're going to miss things. They're not going to be looking at the right place on the ice. So they're going to they're gonna miss something that was blatantly a penalty. So the coaching... Again, I haven't been involved in the NHL, but I'll, I'll talk about my experience in, in amateur hockey. The, the coaching to officials is that you aim to hit all of your impact penalties. Impact penalties are the ones that make a clear distinction of what is and isn't allowed in the game. And when you miss something, the fans, the coaches, the players, if you hit all of your impact penalties, they'll go, okay, he missed that one. But we understand the rest of what he's called because he's made all of the impact penalty calls. So by getting all the impact penalties you see, so not necessarily the ones that are kind of iffy, but all the ones that really make sense, it helps the players understand what's allowed, and that's what brings you back to the idea of communication and using penalties as a communication tool. So you could go and try to call everything, but that's an impossible standard to set because you're going to miss things. It's just it's an impossible standard to set because you're never going to see every, everything because you'll be looking at the wrong place. If you call nothing, which is the other option, if you call nothing, you set no standard, and then at some point someone's going to overstep a line, and then you're going to have to go and call a five in a game or a, a major penalty for something. 
but by that point, it's probably too late. It's already escalated because he called nothing. So there's this middle ground that I talk about in the book where we talk about impact penalties and how your middle ground is hitting all of your impact penalties because that will give the greatest effect for all the game participants and keeping the game fair and safe. What's the toughest call to make as a ref? Oh. Or is that too broad? I, I, I think... I think there's this fear of affecting the game. And I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist your question slightly because you have to get over that fear of affecting the game. And ultimately, that, the hardest call to make is the one where you're most concerned that this is going to have an effect on a game that you didn't want to have. And that's usually late in a game or maybe it's a playoff game. But ultimately, what you have to fall back on is – if you don't make that call, you're penalizing the team that didn't do something wrong. And that's, and, and that's one of the toughest calls to make, whether it's tripping or cross-checking or game misconduct or a major. We don't want to affect the game. We want everyone to know we're there, but we don't want to be the center of attention. So you, you have to overcome that own insecurity that you might have that you're going to affect the game that you don't want to and just focus on calling that impact penalty or making that offside call that's tight and maybe you could have let it go uh, and just make that call to the best of your ability and understand that uh, in the end you might make a mistake, but uh, you're just going to do your best in that moment. As a young official, the hardest call to make is the one where you have to eject someone from a game. That's, that's the easy answer. On a broader, on a broader idea, is that is, is on a broader basis, it's that situation where you don't want to affect the game, but you have to make that call. So, Mitchell, if uh, people want to get a copy of your book, what do they have to do to get one? thehockeyrefbook.com All right, perfect, Mitchell. thehockeyrefbook.com All right. Well, uh, we'll we'll leave it at that. Appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for this uh, informative conversation. Oh, well, let's just all get back to sports and stop talking about covid numbers, right? Yeah, and officiating. <laughs> oh, it's officiating golf fire sports. It's wonderful. Go Bombers. All right, Mitchell Jeffrey, author of How to Referee Hockey. It is not just about the rule book. Again, thehockeyrefbook.com. Schedule came out, uh, and I saw that it was going to be at Niaqua. Obviously, uh, I was very excited to play. Um, I'm kind of picking my spots here in the last few years to, to play provincial events, and certainly having it hosted at Niaqua um, on home soil and being over a weekend sure uh, sure made it fantastic. Uh, you know, you, you saw that with the numbers trying to get into the field of 77 men. I think there ended up being uh, a qualifier, uh, over 100 guys uh, trying to get in. So uh, very exciting. The course uh, was, you know, absolutely spectacular. Our superintendent and staff tried to set it up like a national event, and he certainly succeeded. We had uh, a very fair, very firm, fast golf course which you know you don't get very often around manitoba but certainly the conditions that we've had with the the drought and everything uh helped achieve that and, and putting was at a premium so it, it tested all parts of your game do you feel you had a home field advantage being on your home course you know absolutely uh having played there as much as i have and, and knowing where the whole locations were in advance i, I kind of tried to strategize a little bit about you know where a possible miss might be better than perhaps attacking a spot and and misplaying it and then playing defense so I wasn't always successful uh it was very challenging but I think in the end 
Um, it, it certainly helped. Um, I think I said last night, I'm not sure my game was sharp enough to perhaps come out with the win on another course. I certainly would have been in contention, but I think just that, that difference of perhaps uh, local knowledge, a stroke or two a day really helped. How does it feel that we're kind of having a regular summer of tournaments again in Manitoba? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't play at all last year. So, you know, I, I think last year they, they had a, a quite a regular schedule as well. Um, but certainly for Golf Manitoba to be able to pull this off two years in a row and, and have it available for, uh, you know, the competitive golfers in the provinces, hats off to them. And, um, you know, the, the courses like Niagara that are willing to step up and, and host these events when tee times are at a premium for the membership. So take me through your final round and the way you finished it off in style. Yeah, so if I even go back to Saturday, I was playing with Jordy Lutz and, uh, you know, halfway through the tournament, so 27 holes in, I was four behind him. He had an excellent front nine on Saturday and, and kind of pulled ahead. And then uh, the back nine Saturday, I, I played solid and picked up two, so... You know, starting the day two back and throwing in a little bit of wind, um, I thought maybe even par might be good enough depending on how he played. Um, he didn't get off to the greatest start, and I, I played pretty solid the first hour, so I had kind of caught him and passed him right away. And then suddenly to give it right back on the sixth hole uh, with, with a bogey to his birdie. So we were kind of neck and neck, and then when we stood on the 10th tee, uh, again, we were we were tied, so... Um, I managed to birdie 10 and 14 to pick up a couple shots. And then, um, you know, the 16th hole, we both had our troubles. And then at the end with a two stroke lead with two to go, I, I, I kind of made a mess of a bunker shot on the 17th and had an easy chip and managed to hole it. And then, so three up with one to go, I played quite conservatively under the hole on our 18th hole. And again, had a nice uphill chip and it just fortunately happened to roll in again, which was you know, luck was on my side yesterday, no question, and, and maybe being part of the home course and knowing where to leave it helped as well. So have you ever chipped in, let alone the final two holes of a tournament, but have you ever chipped in on back-to-back -back holes before? You know, uh, Brian Munns asked me that yesterday. When's the last time you, you haven't used your putter on the last two holes at Niagara? And honestly, I don't think I ever have. And, and to your question, back-to-back -back hole outs, I may have at some point, but it's certainly not coming to the top of my mind. I, I do remember in the Canadian um, mid-masters portion, which is 40-plus, I went into a playoff uh, in Victoria, and I hold a bunker shot for Eagle. Of course, didn't get to play another one after that. But, yeah, it, it's pretty rare where, where you don't use your putter back-to-back um, -back holes, let alone finishing a tournament. So does that have this tournament then rank high? in terms of your overall achievements in your career? Yeah, you know, I, I in 2014, when I won my last regular amateur, the last two rounds were at Niagara, and that marked the 30th anniversary of when I won as a 16-year-old. So I would say that one was probably a little bit higher on the local scene. Um, but, you know, getting up there in age like I am, uh, this one's quite special as well. Uh, unfortunately, I was planning to have my son uh, caddy for me this week, but with the restrictions in place, we couldn't have that. And then without spectators, that took a little bit away from it. But, you know, certainly um, doing it at, at home and at Niagara, you know, the well wishes I'm receiving from the members and all the texts this morning is, is great to see. 
if you don't mind me asking, what's kind of the, the average age on in these tournaments? Well, the mid-amateur qualification is 25 and over. So you have to be 25 years old um, to enter. Uh, so they kind of have two categories. If you go back 10 years or maybe 15 years, the mid-amateur was 40 and over, and then they brought it way down to 25. So um, they've continued with a category called the mid-masters, which is 40 and over. So yeah, you got to be 25 and over to, to play play in this. And then the regular amateur this week is, is open to all ages. So um, certainly this that's not an old guys tournament by any means, but at 53, I consider myself <laughs> in the old guy category. Fair enough. Uh, you mentioned the drought conditions because we've had barely any rain basically since the snow melted. But also yesterday, it was hot. What was the, the temperature like when you were out there on the course? Yeah, both of the weekend rounds, uh, the tee times were 3.30 and 4.30. So, yeah, it was, it was 35 degrees raw temperature. And then Saturday didn't have a lot of wind. There was a little bit yesterday. But, yeah, that definitely played a factor into it. And with the course being the way it was set up and putting so difficult, the rounds were even longer than they normally would be. Um, you know, guys just missing short putts and marking and things like that. So we were out there you know, four and a half to five hours both days and just trying to stay in it mentally, stay hydrated. Yeah, pr- provided a, a, certainly a different challenge for sure. But I think maybe uh, having been through that before and having played so many more tournament rounds than some of the guys, uh, again, that helped me kind of, you know, click off between shots and not worry about things the whole five hours and just kind of click it on again when it was your turn to hit. How much sunscreen do you go through as a golfer? Sunscreen. Actually, yeah, I'm a pretty religious sunscreener. I've had uh, a couple of uh, cancerous things removed um, in my day, so definitely it's part of the regiment uh, every morning to apply and then even reapply before the round when you're playing that late. So, um, yeah, I don't fool around with that anymore, uh, knowing what I know about that. It's pretty dangerous. So what's the plan for you for the rest of the summer? That's pretty much it. Uh, I have only, like I said, I'm kind of picking my spots to play one, maybe two a year, and and this was to be the one. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not going to go to nationals this year. Um, Just didn't work with my schedule. So we have um, a league that we play in called Monday Putter, which is an an inter-club league with the the best players from each golf course competing against each other. So the playoffs are coming for that. So that's... uh, real nice fun competitive way to get together with other clubs so i'll continue to do that um until the end of the month and this is uh, one of the, the things about being you know not not a full-time pro <laughs> is that you golf and you're good at golf but you've also got other things and other obligations right yeah absolutely so you know my family most of my family are, are members at niaqua so we try to get out a couple times a week even if it's for nine holes so yeah it's a it's a very relaxed way to you know get through my latter years and um so the senior category so i'm eligible to be considered a senior amateur golfer when i turn 55 so that's in 2023 that'll probably be my next national event i would i would enter that in 2023 uh and and see if i can't uh maybe win another national championship but that's that's a long ways away yet Uh, before i let you go the british open coming up this weekend are you going to be tuned into that 
Yeah, I always try to watch the British. It's it's one of the most dynamic tournaments, uh, depending on the way the golf course plays. And uh, as I said to someone yesterday, it's you know there's between seven and ten guys that I think when they're playing their best are the best players in the world. So if two or three of them get it going, it could be, it could be quite the finish. So it, it's yeah, it, it's always exciting. It, it just makes for early mornings on weekends to get up and watch. That's true. That's why the PVR was invented. You can tape it and tune in a little bit later. And uh, <laughs> yeah. do you have a pick for me before I let you go? Well, it's hard not to go with John Rahm the way he's playing right now. He almost won uh, the Scottish yesterday. He's coming off the U.S. Open. Um, and, you know, I, I like to think Louis Osthausen is maybe ready for a breakthrough. He's had a couple of great majors so far this year. And then my dark horse, which really isn't a dark horse. He always plays well in majors, is Xander Shoffley. Mm. All right, there you go. People, you got the trifecta there from Todd Fanning. Appreciate your time, Todd. Congratulations again on the win. Thanks, Christian. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Of course, that is when the Jets are not playing because if the Jets are playing, then I don't have a show, but I'll be part of the pre- and post-game coverage. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell until we meet again. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to